Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Today, we're joined by Rod Dreyer to talk about the Benedict Option. Is he implying that we should all be hermits like St. Benedict, or are there other ways we can create positive societal change? Let's find out what Rod and the gang have to say. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, the weekly podcast where we try to have a casual conversation about things that count. Uh, very privileged this week to have a, a special guest. As a card-carrying Calvinist, I always assumed that I was a pretty cynical, pessimistic kind of guy when it came to things happening in the wider culture. But I have to take my hat off to our guest today. <laughs> when I discovered his column on the American Conservative, I realized not only here is somebody with a, a, a similar take to myself, but actually a, a much bleaker, more sophisticated, <laughs> but much bleaker it's take possible. on the world than I have. So it's a great pleasure to have the, uh, the journalist, pundit, uh, writer, uh, Rod Dreher with us today. Welcome to the show, Rod. Well, it, it's great to be here, Carla. <laughs> I, I, for an introduction. I, should, I, should, I should tell your listeners that uh, I'm from South Louisiana, so uh, we have a, a habit here, a cultural habit. Whenever the hurricane is coming, you get out the gumbo pot, you ice down beer, and you call all your friends and neighbors to come over and let's have a hurricane party. So, <laughs> indeed, I, indeed, I see things as being culturally very, very bleak, but that is no cause to crawl under the bed and, and wait for the end. That's cause to fire up the gumbo pot and let's see what we can, <laughs> we can ride this out together. Sounds like fun. Fantastic. Well, one of the reasons we, we've asked you on today, Rod, is to talk about the Benedict Option. I think this is a, a term that, that uh, you coined some time ago and have, have been writing on it fairly consistently now for a couple of years, trying to articulate a way in which Christians are going to be able to live within what is not simply a, a post-Christian culture, but what is increasingly obviously going to be a very anti Christian, post-Christian culture. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with that term. I wonder if, if you could give us a 30-second a uh, summary of, of how you got thinking along these lines and what you think the essence of the Benedict Option is. Well, if by 30 seconds you mean three minutes, Go okay, I'll it. do it. Sounds good. Uh, Sounds good. <laughs> uh, I, I've been an opinion journalist for most of my career and, it, and, and also a, a believing Christian. It occurred to me about 10 years ago that uh, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre was right uh, when, in his diagnosis of Western culture, that we were so fragmented that we couldn't really solve our problems anymore because we had ceased to believe uh, as a collective in, in a, a, source, uh, a common source of morality, which of course would be the Bible and the Christian tradition. McIntyre said that uh, what we needed to do was to quit believing that the moral and civil life has to do with the what he calls the uh, supporting the imperium, in other words, the, the broader culture. And we need to retire into local communities to build up our, the local community within which uh, moral and civil life can, can continue in, the, in what he calls a new dark age. Now, McIntyre brought up Benedict of Nursia, the 6th century monk, 
who left uh, the who left Rome after the fall of the empire, left the city of Rome because it was so decadent, and went out to the forest to pray and to figure out what God was calling him to do. What Benedict did was found a religious order, the the well-known Benedictines. And he wrote The Rule of St. Benedict, which has been called by some the second most influential book in Western civilization after the Bible. It's simply a, a fairly thin book of how to live in Christian community together for these monks. And the reason it was so influential was uh, centuries after Benedict died, the, the Benedictine order grew and grew and grew, and they went out into Europe, a Europe that had fallen into the barbarian hands, and they evangelized and they civilized Europe, and they made possible the rebirth of civilization. Now, um, the what I call the Benedict option is trying to figure out what we lay Christians, we who are, I say, small O Orthodox Christians, meaning uh, Presbyterians like yourself, Protestants who who you know hold to traditional views of the Bible, uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox like myself, and how can we? living in this post-Christian culture that we're stuck in, what can we learn from the monks about how to build resilient Christian communities that can withstand this new dark age? So would this be a a withdrawal from society that you're advocating or something yes. different? Yeah, it would be something of a withdrawal. Um, I mean, people, the first question I get is, are you saying head to the hills? Well, no, not really, because I, I'm not headed to the hills, and I, I can't afford to do that, and I don't feel that I'm called to do that. We're not called to be monks or nuns, but um, it does require, uh, to a significant extent, withdrawing or seceding in place from the mainstream culture, giving up political hope for fixing this thing, and instead focusing intensely on building local uh, institutions and local communities of faith. Uh, that, as I say, can be resilient. And by resilient, I mean communities of faith that know how to suffer for Christ and to suffer joyfully. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this is very fascinating, and I've, and I've been reading along for the months that, that, that you've been writing about this at great interest because, on the one hand, I think people, uh, perhaps in, in certain Presbyterian camps, would, would look at this and identify with it to a large extent because oftentimes Presbyterians will have kind of a category of, a, of, of what we tend to refer to as a two-kingdom approach. You've got God's kingdom, you know, the city of God, and then you've got the city of man, and, and they're very separate, they're very different. It doesn't mean that we're absent or that we run from the hills, uh, but it does mean that we limit our expectations and what can actually occur um, in the city of man. Now, my my question is, what does what does political involvement look like in in this category, the Benedict Option? That's a great question, and that is one of the central questions that I'm working on now. I'm I'm writing a book about the Benedict Option that will be published next year. Good. I, th- I think the first thing that we need to do is is abandon political hope in the sense of normal politics, mm-hmm. in the sense of partisan politics, uh, fixing things. I I. The thing that got so many people nationwide interested in the Benedict Option, even though I've been writing about it on and off for a decade, was what happened in Indiana about a year ago with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act there. When the state of Indiana passed this, uh, suddenly big business nationwide came down like a ton of Mm -hmm. bricks on the state, and the state backed down. 
that was the first time in the culture war that big business had taken a side right. and they took a side tremendously. That it seems to have electrified Christians around the country because they realized that you know, we thought big business maybe wasn't on our side, but at least it was uh, not our opponent. Right. And now they realize, no, that, that's not true. Big business is our opponent. They care nothing for religious liberty, and they are big donors to the Republican Party. Right. Last, uh, last autumn, I went to Capitol Hill uh, in Washington to give a talk about the Benedict Option and had lunch with some key Republican staffers who happened to be practicing Christians as well, both on the Senate and the House side. My first question to them was asking them, what are you going to do for religious liberty? Because you know, gay civil rights, as it expands, religious liberty necessarily contracts. They all said, there's nothing. You know, we have no plans to do it. That was a, a, a moment for me, where an epiphany, when I realized we really are on our own here. I, don't, I wouldn't say don't you know, drop out from po politics. Uh, I, I still vote. I'm going to vote. I'm going to get more involved in local politics. But what I'm saying is we need to give up the idea that we Christians are have any real power at the national level and need to quit distracting ourselves by thinking that if we just elect more Republicans and more the right kind of Republicans, we're going to pull this off. Right. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So, I mean, you say Christians should still be involved in politics, Rod. What, what do you think that looks like on, on the ground? I mean, you clearly prioritize the local over the national there. Does it look like being on school boards? Does it look like standing for to be a, a, a borough councillor? What, what, what would you recommend at this point? Let's say there's a young guy in my church and he's saying to me, I'd love to go into politics. What should I as his pastor be, be pointing him towards, do you think, is the most constructive way to approach this? Well, I, I would not want to discourage people from getting involved in serving locally on the school board or at the town council, that sort of thing. That's really important. And in a town like the one I live in, I live in a town of 1,700 people in South Louisiana, uh, it's still culturally Christian, and you can have a, a tremendous effect in, in if you serve uh, locally. But what I would also say is we need to expand our vision of what constitutes politics. I think in the, in the broader theoretical sense, politics is the science of how we live together in community. I have seen uh, in my travels researching the Benedict Option, I have seen tremendously important political uh, activities take place by people doing things like forming schools. In San Benedetto del Tronto, a city on the Adriatic in Italy, I visited this uh, past winter a Catholic community, a lay Catholic community, that has started a school called the Scuola G.K. Chesterton. And it's for, it's a classical Christian school. It's for the members of their own community, but they also reach out to local people to try to bring them into their school and into their circles, both as a form of evangelization and as a form of community solidarity. They take poor kids in who have been in trouble with the law and help them out. That is a form of political engagement too. Political mm -hmm. engagement is not simply electoral politics. Yeah. Do you think, though, that, that shifts – I mean, thinking of schools, I mean, I teach at a seminary. Uh, you know, we, we're all, already starting to think about what the Title IX implications could be coming down the pike for us with gay rights, transgender stuff. I mean, on one, thing, on one level, it's great to say Christians should be forming their own schools. But do you think we could be moving to a situation where those schools at, at, at best won't be recognized by the state – and at worst, could be subject to some form of, of more active persecution. 
I, I think that's absolutely possible, and not only possible but likely. Uh, in talking to lawyers who have been active in the religious liberty fight, uh, they tell me that the closer schools and other institutions are are tied to churches, uh, the better off they'll be, and the more doctrinally clear churches are, uh, the better off they'll be in court if these things get challenged. But that doesn't tell us anything about, uh, say, state accreditation agencies taking away the accreditation of schools. We, we have to be prepared for that happening. And that's why I, when I talk about the Benedict option, I, I say that we need to build resilient communities, communities that can resist whatever the state throws at us and the wider post-Christian community throws at us and learn how to thrive anyway. It may come to the point where our, our our Christian colleges uh, who hold on to the faith are shut down or effectively shut down because they're unaccredited. We have to figure out how we're going to thrive in that situation. Uh, my kids will probably end up at a at a state university because of economic reasons. I want to send them out when they leave our household. I want to send them out with a strong Christian conviction in their hearts built in not only from what we taught them and what our church has taught them, but in the practices of their lives so they will know how to live out in the quote-unquote pagan world without losing their faith. Mm. Do you see the the Benedict option as a way of advancing Christ's kingdom in in the secular world? And and if so, what what role do you see the preaching of the gospel in that? Yeah, that's a great question too. And I, I think that it pretty much is the only way forward because what we see is so many churches um, have gone down to what the, the sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism, mm-hmm. where they you know they say they're preaching the gospel. What they're really preaching is a life of American bourgeois comfort. Mm-hmm. And um, you know I, I've seen this happen time and time again. I think that the churches that are going to be faithful to the gospel are going to be those that, uh, will be increasingly countercultural and uh, are aware of their countercultural nature, and they, you have to keep preaching the gospel. There's there's no there's no way to be a faithful Christian without evangelizing, but I think that evangelization is going to take more than it's going to be more than simply preaching the word. Uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth uh, had a very wise statement uh, a few years ago. He said that, speaking of the Catholic Church. He said the most effective arguments we have for the faith are not the propositional arguments, but the art we create and the lives of the saints, meaning the material forms of, of the Christian faith, of people who are maybe have shut their, their minds off to listening to our arguments and our, our preaching, but they are still uh, taken in by the beauty of, of the culture we create and by the, the, the lives of the saints, the good that we do, they can see Christ in us, and maybe that will be the thing that draws them into us, not simply the words that we say. Mm-hmm. Rod, it, it's becoming clear now that uh, it's, it's not just, um, oh, conspiracy theorists and uh, uh, fringe radicals who are actually beginning to have serious conversations about direct opposition from, from the state. When, when the President of the United States, for instance, says that Christians who believe what Christians have always believed about marriage are, are bad citizens, in essence, that they're bigots, it's not a big leap at that point uh, to imagine uh, more formal um, action from the state. Um, 
I wonder if, if you'd put on your futurist cap for a second to think about, I'm sure you've thought about this, but what, what, do, you think that, what do you think we'll see next by way of pressure or marginalization from the state towards Christians? Well, I, I think that we have to look not only at the state, but also at um, certain private mm. uh, associations like the NCAA, for yeah, example. Yeah. It has just came, just came out this week uh, saying that any city that wants to host an NCAA event has right. to have certain you know, laws in place. Um, I think we're going to see the next thing the state and private activists are going to do is to try to uh, take away the accreditation of traditional Christian schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe me, I, it's not just me saying this. I mean, you, you as you right. know, Carl, that uh, this is but what a lot of Christian educators are talking about. And so we need to prepare for that. Um, my wife is involved in trying to start a, a local classical Christian school in our town. And I've told her, I said, you better make sure you're talking to a lawyer when you do this, because um, this is going to get very hairy, very fast. And I, I think that one thing most Christians, even well-meaning Christians, don't understand is how quickly this stuff is is, is moving. Right. Um, I spoke yesterday to a Christian academic who I, I can't name for his own protection, but uh, he's a Protestant who studies the family as part of his um, as part of his professional work, and he told me that the transgender revolution is moving far faster than even he thought, and he was very bleak about it. And he said, if we get if this stuff takes root. Uh, whether it's from the state, uh, as it's already doing, as the Obama administration is already doing, demanding, you know, saying that transgender is part of Title IX. If this stuff takes root in the thinking of our people, said we're done for, because it's not just about sexuality, it's about anthropology. The thing that I'm more worried about is not so much the state, although that is a worry, but the fact that even here in, in my small town, uh, in the deep south, the whole LGBT agenda for those 35 and under, people already believe it. And this is one of the most conservative states in the country. Yeah. We've engaged, of course, uh, Rod, about the, the recent push in my own school district to bring in uh, transgender rules on sports and bathrooms. And that legislation was passed by the school board about 10 days ago. I, I wrote a letter, as you know, to them and they did not engage me in my arguments. I wrote to the local paper. They didn't acknowledge even my letter to the local paper. I got a young Christian couple I know in the neighborhood to to launch a kind of Facebook campaign. I, I don't do Facebook myself. And what was interesting, the, the feedback I got from them was that virtually nobody uh, supported them on Facebook. When they went to a a cookout, a barbecue at the at the school, a number of parents came up and expressed support for what they were doing mm-hmm. verbally, but none of them would actually put anything on the internet and put mm-hmm. their, their, their heads above the, the parapet. It seems that the the fear of being, you know, to, to use old-fashioned language, the fear of being outed on this is tremendous. And my great worry is that the whole thing is, is passing by default because people are terrified of being marginalized in their own communities for holding views that, to quote Tony Esselin, uh, you know, everybody held the day before yesterday. Yeah, that's right. And that, that is why I see, Carl, the, the cultural aspect of this battle being the most important one, much more important than the political. I, I spoke to a, a professor last year and asked him for advice on how to pursue this Benedict option. Uh, and he said, well, what I would advise you to do is ask yourself, what did Carol Wojtyla do 
when the Nazis occupied his country. Wojtyla, of course, became Pope John Paul II. I said, I don't know, what did he do? My professor friend said he started a theater company. And I thought, that's really odd. Why, what does that have to do with what we're facing? Well, what that has to do with it is Wojtyla, I went and did some research on this, Wojtyla and his circle of, of Catholics in Poland understood that what the Nazis intended to do was to crush all cultural memory of Poland's Catholicism and Poland's national culture. And they saw what was, what was critically important to do is to keep alive mm. the hearts of the Poles, the memory of what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to be a Pole. And so they would, that was what they did. They were actors, and they did their part in resisting the, uh, the broader culture, the totalitarian culture, by staging these plays clandestinely. I mean, if the Nazis had come in there, they would have killed them all. But that, that I think, is a really interesting way to think about how we Christians, we ortho, small o Orthodox Christians, can resist what's coming. Because, as you see, it's already conquered the minds of a lot of our neighbors who are good people but who are terrified to speak up. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the things I've stressed with students recently, two things. They'll Sometimes students will ask me at the seminary, how do we argue against this stuff? And I've said, it's hard to argue against something that was never argued for in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not been done by propositional argument. It's mm-hmm. been done by changing tastes. Yeah. It brings me to my second point, that I think that it's soap opera sitcoms and movies have done a lot of this. They are essentially extended commercials for particular ways of life, promoting certain tastes. And that's why it's so hard now to fight against this, because we assume we're arguing rationally, but the argument has never been presented in a rational way. It's, It's more of a gut reaction or an aesthetic thing that's gone on, I think. That's right. And and McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, called this in his book After Virtue in 1981. He said that the primary mode of argumentation in our culture today is not rational. It's emotivist. And uh, that is that was such a prophetic insight. But this is what our culture has come to. And I saw it myself when I was in the newsroom for many years uh, and would try to argue back in from 2003 to 2010 when I was at a big city newsroom, when I would try to present within the journalistic group uh, arguments for traditional marriage, nobody even engaged me on the argument. They mm. thought the argument itself was a sign of bigotry. And the paper, as did many papers and TV news organizations around the country, it never gave uh, the Christian argument a fair shot. So if you were the sort of person who was benignly or naively exposing yourself to the media, the news media and the entertainment media, you would have thought that the only reasonable argument was the pro-LGBT argument. That's happening again with transgender. And so part of the withdrawal that we were talking about earlier involves a withdrawal from popular culture. Uh, my kids, for example, we haven't had a we, we have a television in the house, but we only get uh, TV programs through Netflix and Amazon Prime. Which, so my wife and I can curate them. We don't we don't put a bubble around our house where our kids can understand nothing about popular culture. My my kids probably know a lot more about music and film and art than most of the kids their age. So we're not simply depriving them of one thing. We're giving them lots of good things. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really the only way to do it. Uh, you have to put your foot down. And as I've, you know, Carl, you read my blog. I've been writing a lot about the role of, uh, of smartphones in corrupting kids. Here in my hometown, again, tiny town in the deep south, culturally conservative. Uh, we moved down here uh, a few years ago. My wife, who is a homeschooler, 
uh, looked around for other homeschooling parents, she found a Southern Baptist couple who had recently taken their children out of the local public school system. Now, that's an unusual thing to do that because this, our local schools are some of the best in Louisiana, the public schools. My wife said, why did you do that? She said, the day that our fifth grade son came home from school saying that his buddies were watching hardcore pornography on the smartphones their parents gave them, yeah. that's when we pulled the trigger. Yeah. And this is not the school's fault. They, they're not allowed to have smartphones at schools, but that is the local culture, and parents are allowing it to colonize their kids without any objection at all. Yeah. Hmm. The other day, there was an article on First Things about the, the rise in, for want of a better way of expressing it, uh, genital plastic surgery among girls under 18. And the stunning thing about that is that it must be paid for by the parents. The parents are complicit in this dismantling of any kind of moral structure in society. So what you're saying, Rod, is I think it's chilling. Uh, My wife once, we, our kids went to the local public schools. My wife made a complaint about the way some of the girls were dressing and was told by the headmaster, well, we've tried to do it, but the girls' parents are the ones who jump all over us whenever we try to bring in a dress right. code. It's, right. it's very depressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's really true. And I, the, the, the people who drive me crazy are parents who identify as conservative Christians, mm-hmm. but they uh, have this cognitive dissonance. They, right. they don't understand how everything they let their kids participate in and be exposed to as part of mainstream American culture is sending a much more powerful catechetical message to the kids, undermining everything the parents are trying to teach them. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, this has certainly been sobering, uh, but it is a time for sober thought. That's the time we're living in. And we certainly want to thank our special guest, Rod Dreer. If you are not uh, regularly reading um, Rod Dreer's pieces, you need to be sure and do that. You can find him just by googling his name you can go to the american conservative and other sources he has a blog he's well worth your time he's one of those folks that you just need to read on a regular basis um and i would also just personally recommend that you when you get a chance if you want a really wonderful read that will bless you um uh, he wrote a book called The Little Way of, of Ruthie Lemming um, about his sister. And, and all I'll say is it's a, it's a very moving family memoir that has a lot to say to us today. And um, uh, there, there's, there's other things uh, by Rod out there, but that's one that I have a lot of affection for. But, Rod, we do want to thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, really enjoyed the, uh, the conversation, and please keep up the great work you're doing. We're, uh, we're glad you're out there. Well, thank you so much, and I would just leave you by saying that for all the the bleakness that in the things we talk about, I agree with Russell Kirk when he said the world remains sunlit despite its vices. Mm. It's so important that uh, we hold on to that joy, that joy of a, that Christ gives us, even as we stand against this dark age. Well said, absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for Mortification of Spin. Uh, please uh, check out our website, mortificationofspin.org. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. 
This week at mortificationofspin.org, we're making available a message, Christianity and Culture Wars by Michael Horton. Given at the 1994 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, Dr. Horton talks about the way Christians should engage the culture at the end of the 20th century. We hope you'll listen. And after you hear that message, come back next week when the crew defends their views on the current debate involving the Trinity. It, has, uh, it is a, a controversy that has drawn um, responses from around the world. Uh, I'm thankful for the fact that it has us talking about some really, really important doctrines that I think have been neglected uh, in recent years. Uh, but it's caused some real tension in a lot of relationships, and there's been lots of accusations and counter-accusations. What starts as a fairly, on one level, esoteric debate has fairly immediate practical consequences once you A, accept this, what I would regard as revised understanding of the Trinity, uh, and second, the connection of that revised understanding of the Trinity to the relationships uh, between men and women. I think that one thing that can come out of this as well is to really teach what headship means and what it doesn't mean and, and why we have headship. I mean, what does the Bible say about that? That and more next time. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to read and subscribe to the Mortification of Spin blog and listen to Christianity and Culture Wars. Just as an aside, we did have a moment where uh, a friend uh, I met last week introduced them to the podcast and uh, played it to their parents. And the first thing they heard was Amy Bird mocking uh, the theology of menstruation, which oh, didn't get out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take that one from the top. Yeah.